right, thanks, Steve. Well, good morning to you. You all right? Make it through Easter okay, all your egg searching. We had three hours of egg, what are they called? Egg something. Hunt, thank you, egg hunts. Lots of that. With six kids, we do lots of egg hunting. I filled up lots of eggs with jelly beans. All right, uh, well, we're back in the book of Revelation. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it, find Revelation chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible and or a device and or have the chapter memorized, there is a Bible in front of you in one of the pews. Go ahead and grab it. Find the very last book of your Bible. I'll tell you where we've been. We're back after spending some time uh, hearing from AJ in the book of Jude and preparing our hearts through the Easter season. Pray that was an encouragement to you, so we're Glad to be back here in the book of Revelation. This text this morning is not an easy one. Uh, I'm going to make you work for it a little bit. Revelation chapter 7. This is how the book of Revelation has worked up to this point. You saw the revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is in Revelation chapter 1. You saw the letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then before anything else went forward, we had two whole chapters in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 talking all about worship of God who is on his throne and the worthiness of the lamb in Revelation chapter five. And Revelation chapter five says, worthy are you to take the seals and to open them. And we saw the lamb take the seals from the open hand of the ancient of days, God on his throne and begin to move history to the conclusion according to the plans and purposes of God. And then we spent time looking at the opening of those seals. The opening of those seals was one, two, three, and four, and released angels who were given the authority over several world forces, everything from politics to war, national and international strife. We saw economic situations get worse. We saw people slay one another. And Revelation chapter six, at the fourth seal, you saw death on a pale horse and Hades followed with him. Then we saw, uh, we're really in the middle here. When you move through the book of Revelation, there are two things that are happening. As any good history book does, history books don't just give you chronology of facts. That's a part of world history that we know when certain things happen. But throughout the course of us studying history, you also have biography. You have the story of individuals who showed up at a time and a place and were pivotal in moving history to its desired conclusion. So that's the story really of all of our history. And in the end times history, as we're now moving into the last three and a half years of human history before Jesus Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, you have biography. And we saw that in the fifth and the sixth seal. The fifth seal, we saw martyrs. Uh, where you saw these martyrs beneath the throne of God crying out for justice and they lost their lives because the testimony that they gave about God and his word. And then you move from heaven down to earth. And on earth you see the sixth seal open and the sky rolls back like a scroll and you see there, if you're in Revelation chapter seven, you see the last few verses of Revelation chapter six, which uh, expose the earth dwellers, that is a technical term in the book of Revelation, for those who will not believe ever in God and his Christ, the lamb and also the lion. And here's what they say. Take a look here at Revelation chapter six as we get a little bit of a running start here. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone Slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So we're on earth as the sky rolls back and sinful humanity finally sees the truth of God in his wrath being revealed and human history progressing according to the purposes of the Christ, the Lamb of God. And what we're going to do today is stay on earth for just another minute, then we're going to move back to a view in heaven. So you have a heavenly reality, the souls who died for their testimony. You move down to earth and see the earth dwellers, those who refuse to repent, those who continue to uh, deny God and his Lamb, 
We have this group of people in Revelation chapter 7. Then after that, the remainder of chapter 7, we're going to move back up to heaven and see another group of people. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. But for just a brief moment, we're going to stay on earth and we're going to see a group of people that throughout the course of your New Testament has not been primary. They haven't been the focus of what God is doing in the church. Rather, as Paul will say in Romans 9 through 11, they've gone through a period of hardening so that the full number of Gentiles will come to faith. And at this moment in your Bible, they're going to take center stage again. The church has been moved out with the rapture, which we saw several weeks ago. And now God's Old Testament covenant people are going to take center stage again. And the question that you and I have is why is Israel here? This is not an easy text to interpret. Commentators kind of fall on two different sides as to who these people are. And I'll show you where I land as we get into this text. But I want to ask a question as we begin that will help frame your mindset as to what is going on in this passage. Why is God's faithfulness to Israel so important to you and to me? And maybe that's not a question that you've really ever asked yourself. It certainly seems like when I open the text of the New Testament that now God's purposes seem to be a multi-ethnic Jew and Gentile, slave-free, male-female, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, multi-economic new people of God. But when you move to the book of Revelation, you have these themes that are not resolved. And it's not until the book of Revelation where you begin to see the ultimate fulfillment of some of God's promises that up to this point, God has not brought to pass. Is that true? Are we in heaven now? Aren't we waiting for God to complete the work he began in us? That if this is heaven, we're not doing that great, right? That we have yet to experience what Paul calls in the book of Romans the adoption of our bodies. That we live between the already of what Jesus Christ has done in his death, burial, and resurrection and the not yet. We're not home yet. And the question for you and I as we come to the book of Revelation is if God is going to be faithful to me, then he better have been faithful to the nation of Israel. Otherwise, has he set Israel aside and are we now the new people of God? If so, what do we do with our disbelief? What do we do with our skepticism? What do we do with with our dark days where we can't see what God is doing and don't understand what's going on in our lives and can't put the spiritual reality and our physical reality together? They don't align. Suzanne and I had a had a good friend who, when she read the Old Testament, would get so frustrated at the nation of Israel and would go, they have the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night and the manna every morning and the quail, and they saw the Red Sea, and I, these people are so frustrating. Can't they get it together in their relationship with God? And I was such a good pastor, I just shut my mouth and went, mm. yeah, can't they? Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that we have Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the ultimate miracle of our entire Bible, and we still wrestle with unbelief? There are vast areas of my life where I'm like the man who brings the the son who has the demon that throws him into the fire, and he says to Christ, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That I'm not whole in my heart. I see in part and dimly, and it's hard for me to lay hold by faith of the truth that I see in his word. So why is God's faithfulness to Israel such an important truth for us to hold on to? That's what Revelation 7 is about, okay? Let's pray and ask God for his grace, and we'll dive in here together. Father in heaven, thanks for your word. Thanks that we can come to the clear spring of your word and find refreshment, truth to heal our hearts, to encourage us when are weak, 
to give us belief when unbelief seems to haunt our lives and our hearts and our minds. For those who come in this morning who are despairing and discouraged and uncertain of what you're doing, I pray that today they would gain great confidence of your love of them, that they would gain great confidence that the promises of your word are certain, true, and steadfast. That we, as we prepare our hearts to partake of communion, would be reminded again of your faithfulness to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Father, give us wisdom, give us your grace, open our ears, open our hearts to receive what you would say to us today. And then we, may we present to you hearts of wisdom that live in light of the truth of God. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus who frees us from our sins by his blood. Amen. All right, well, let's look here. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Here's our, um, your seventh seal isn't going to be opened, like I said, until Revelation chapter 8. So we're in this biographical sketch section that shows you these people. Take a look at verse uh, 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls all have kind of a 4-3 element to them. You saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse and then moved down into individuals that we dealt with in five and six. You're going to see the four angels holding back the four winds at the four corners of the earth. And then we're going to deal with individuals here again in a second. But let's begin here with these four angels. We saw the angels that were given authority with the four horsemen, the authority over uh, political realm and economic realm and the social and relational realms. These angels are different in that they are given authority. And they're given authority to stop the wind. Now I'm going to talk about why that's important in just a minute, but imagine just for a second the massive power that God gives to angels to be able to turn off the high pressure, the low pressure, the El Nino, the cold front, the warm front, the moving of the wind across our planet that creates waves and breezes and trees that move in the wind and pollen and all of those realities for us. I I had a friend who lived in Oklahoma when I lived in Texas and I, I went up to see him at one point and there was a tornado watch and we did like all good ignorant and mildly interested individuals do in the midst of a tornado watch, and we went outside. I don't know why we went outside, but we decided to go outside. And if you've ever been in the midst of a Texas thunderstorm or you've been in the midst of a hurricane that comes over Charleston, you want to know what happens in the eye, don't you? You want to go out in the midst of the eye where there are 100 mile an hour winds moving on either side. Things are perfectly and genuinely still. Imagine that stillness moving over the entire planet as the rotation of the earth and the winds that move and create the water cycle and all of those things move to complete and utter stillness. How would that make you feel? that momentary restraint that God puts upon the wind so that no wind, verse one says this and it goes on, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. That the wind that nobody can grasp and nobody can understand where it goes is immediately brought to stillness. Now what you see in the book of Revelation, uh, and we've seen this up to this point, but you see the blurring of uh, world forces, human nature, and now the created order. And everything in this story, we like things in our life to operate according to cause and effect, right? If I have no money in my account, I need to trace back the reasons that have brought me to the place where I have no money in my account, and I discover that I have been spending money on things that, you know, like things that people like to eat, or shoes, or variety of things that require you to spend money on six children, right? And, and that's a cause and effect. And I like to live in that world, right? I like things easily explainable in my life. That if I'm facing difficulty in my life, we very quickly go to places in our life where we go, this must be a result of things that I have done, choices that I have made, 
that have brought me to this point of difficulty in my life. And what you find in the book of Revelation that is so fascinating is that there is direct correlation between spiritual things, heavenly things, throne room things, and things that happen on earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a spiritual reality that at this time in your life has an influence and effect upon your life? Do you believe that? That that's what the Christian, we don't believe as Christians that God kind of wound this thing up like a yo-yo and then just kind of let it go and isn't involved that we believe God is both transcendent, which means above his creation, and imminent, which means involved with his creation. That we believe that. We believe that you can actually have a relationship with God who can come into your life, change your life, that you can pray and know his will and understand your life differently. And all of those distinctions that for us become blurred in our lives, where we typically like things orderly according to things that we can understand, all of that has moved away in the book of Revelation because now you have angels involved in the weather. You don't just have high pressure and low pressure systems that are picking up moisture from the Gulf and dumping it onto the low country, right? Now you have the angelic order that is stopping the movement of wind so that something very, very important in God's plan can happen. That God in the book of Revelation takes away this layer where we're unclear as if he's involved. And he says, no, every single seal that the lamb opens has a consequence on earth. Every single decision God makes has a consequence on earth. Every single angel that he sends to do his will has a consequence on earth. When consequence with people, that people are experiencing the spiritual invading the physical. And you go, Steve, that's hard to believe. Well, it is the book of Revelation. It is the unveiling the seeing things for how it really is, not the way that we like to see things in our perspective, that John is getting a front row seat to really what is happening behind the scenes. Imagine the meteorologists on this day. I mean, they can't predict the weather in Charleston at all anyway. But imagine meteorologists going like, well, I think uh, the wind has stopped because, I don't know, back to you, Dave. And God says, I'm stopping the wind with angels who have the power to restrain the north, the south, the east, and the west wind. Because we're about to do something. Look at verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. That word seal is going to be mentioned six different times in these eight verses. With the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea. These angels are not just holding back the winds, but they have been given, just like the four horsemen, authority over a particular realm. And these angels restrain the wind and have the authority, what we'll see in Revelation chapter 8, they'll have the authority to pour out God's wrath on the earth, the vegetation, the oceans, and the rivers. They have the authority to harm that area. And they'd been given the power to harm the earth and the the sea. Verse 3. Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. All right. Sealing. This is an interesting term. Uh, It's not a rare term in the New Testament, is it? that when you hear about the servants of God being sealed, there are probably certain scriptures that come to your mind. If you've read through your New Testament, the New Testament epistles that Paul has written for us, you go back to verses like Ephesians chapter 1. It says this, Ephesians 1.13, And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1 says that he has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The seals are symbols of God's authority and ownership and purpose and design. Do you believe that? That God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit to use you and your life in this time and this place for his purposes, right? 
that it's a down payment of the salvation that was won for us in Jesus Christ as a promise that God will be faithful to his word. So when commentators come to Revelation chapter 7, they go, ceiling, this must be the church. That's basically your two main interpretations of this text. Is this the church or is this the sons of Israel? Now, they say it could be the church because of this idea of sealing of the servants of God, that the New Testament church is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God during its time on earth to guarantee their safety and security, and that these folks could be, Revelation chapter 7, the sealing of God's church in the time of his wrath being poured out on earth for his purposes to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, that they will travel through the tribulation being unhurt and untouched, and they will be protected because of the seal that God has put upon them. That's not bad. I don't think it's right, but that's not bad. There are principles here that God protects us, right? Now let me tell you why I don't think that's it. Look at verse four. And I heard the number of the sealed, there it is again, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, here's why I don't think this is the church. Because John hears the people sealed and they are the sons of Israel. I know that's I know that's tough. Hard to argue with. But throughout the course of your Bible, the sons of Israel are consistently referred to as the sons of Israel. Should I slow down? You get that? That's pretty easy. If you read this and you hand it to any eighth grader, they would say, well, they're sealing of the sons of Israel. Now, the sons of Israel uh, are the 12 tribes that come out of Genesis chapter 49. The 12 sons of Jacob, they go to, um, they go to Egypt, and you have a blessing upon the 12 that happens toward the end of Jacob's life, and then he dies, and then the 12 sons are in e- Egypt, and that's how the book of Exodus opens, that the tribes of Israel are there in the nation of Egypt. So here's your question, is that when we come to our New Testament now, our New Testament seems to paint this picture of a multi-ethnic, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female group of people called the church, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit and now are living on our planet, proclaiming the truth that God saves sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So why is it that Israel is back central here? Now, maybe you haven't given a lot of thought to that question throughout the course of this week. I hadn't either until I had to when I came to Revelation chapter 7, right? You need to spend some time going, well, what does this mean, God? How do we interpret this? How should we understand the truth of your word? And as you move through your Old Testament, um, you ever find... uh, when you read your Bible, this, this is a common experience, that we have a tendency when we read our Bible to put ourselves front and center in the interpretation. Do you find that? That we do it almost uh, instinctively. That we face problems in our life and we come to the word of God and we come across Joshua and Jericho And we find out that Joshua and the people of Israel march around the city seven times and we have this issue in our life about this thing that isn't working out the way we need to. And we read the text and we go, that must mean that I need to march around something seven times. I don't know what it is, but maybe it's the kitchen table. Maybe it's my house. Maybe it's my car. I don't know. I'm having car troubles. Maybe I should march around my car seven times, lay hands on it. And that's what this text means for me. Or I'm having problems finding a job, and I go to the book of job, and I read it, and I find out that this book is not, it's really depressing, and this doesn't give me a lot of prospects and hope for a job. We laugh, but don't we do that? Haven't you ever been reading the book of, of reading God's word and sitting around with other people, and you go, what does this mean to you? And that's not bad, but we have a tendency then to miss the forest for the trees. We miss the point of what is happening in the passage because we so want to rush to God's word being about me. And newsflash, God's word is not about you. It's about God. 
so that if you want a hint as to whether or not you're interpreting a text appropriately, here's a great question. Would your interpretation match the interpretation of the original hearers? And that's, that question is going to be so important for what I look at in this text in the next few minutes. Would you, would the people who are receiving John's letter in AD 90-ish, would they understand our interpretation in 2021? Or are we reading truths about who we are back into the time of the book of Revelation? And this happens all the time. So that you have people quote a verse to you and tell you about the decisions you're making and you walk away and you go, that ain't what that verse means. Because they take it and they read it through the lens of themselves. So this original context is so important, especially for John, because what John is seeing here is so hopeful. And I want to show you why. We begin this text with four angels at four corners with four winds, right? And then we have a, then the winds stop, and we have the sealing of God's people, the sons of Israel. Now, when a Jew would hear the four winds, the four winds are mentioned only two other times in the New Testament. It's not a common conversation. In fact, Jesus is the only one who mentions it and talks about it, and he says this in Matthew 24. Here's what it says. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. That sounds like Revelation 7 to me. Does that sound like it to you? He says it again in Mark 13. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. That sounds like Revelation chapter 7 to me. But if you are a first century Jew and you knew your Old Testament, you would know that that phrase, the four winds, is not an arbitrary phrase. It's not just, well, it's it's north, south, east, and west. If you were to read across your Old Testament and come across the phrase, the four winds, you would hear something that you would hear maybe in the book of Daniel, that the four winds stir up the seas And in the midst of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 4, world powers come out. And Daniel has visions of these world kingdoms all the way until Daniel chapter 11. And in Daniel chapter 11, it says that these kingdoms are spread to the four winds. It's a picture of God's judgment upon a wicked nation. So that God will raise up a nation, use them for his purposes, crunch them up, and then disperse them and raise up another nation. Now, this is consistent in the Old Testament, especially when it comes to world powers in their relationship to Israel. Because Israel walks away from God, and the Assyrians come in in 722, and they take the northern ten tribes, and they take them into captivity, Isaiah talks about that. And then in 586 BC, you find out the Assyrians don't last long. The Assyrians are taken over by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in and they take the last two tribes, and they're taken into exile, into captivity. And the Babylonians are strong for a while, but then the Medes and the Persians show up and conquer the Babylonians. And the the Medes and the Persians are ultimately conquered by the Greeks. And then the Greeks are ultimately conquered by the Romans, and that brings you all the way up to Jesus' time when the Romans are occupying the land of Israel. Okay, so, so what? But if you were to read back through your prophetic literature, there's also a time when the four winds are spoken of in relation to God's people that there's a king of the Persians who releases Ezra to come back to the nation of of Israel and specifically to Jerusalem. And Ezra brings back all of these people out of captivity with him, and they're allowed to come back to the land and to reestablish worship, and Ezra reestablishes the altar, and people begin to sacrifice, and their religious life, along with their geographic national life, is beginning to be restored. And then they get ready to work on the temple, and they're working on the temple, and then they get discouraged And there are two prophets that God raises up to encourage the people to continue to be about the work. It's Haggai and Zechariah. And Haggai is this wonderfully 
a deep and sweet and encouraging prophet who talks about how they're distracted and their defilement God's going to take away and that he's going to shake everything else to make sure that his people are brought back. And Haggai prophesies like on a Wednesday and Zechariah is like on a Thursday and Zechariah comes in and he has all of these visions, but Zechariah has a word for God's people in Zechariah 2 that's very important. Now, if you've never found Zechariah in your Bible, I get it. It's, it's not an easy one to find. Go back to Matthew and then flip back two books into Malachi and Zechariah. And I want to show you this from Zechariah chapter 2. And it's the greatest promise. I could show you this from lots of places. But Zechariah 2 is this moment to where a Jew who's receiving this letter from John would be so filled with anticipation of God actually doing this and being faithful to his word. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 2. Look at verse 6. Zechariah 2 verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the what? As the four winds. Did God's pe- were God's people unfaithful to him? They were. Did they go after other idols? They did. Were they ultimately cast out from the land of promise that God gave to Abraham? They were. And now at this point in Haggai and Zechariah, God is saying, I have spread you abroad to the four winds, declares the Lord. Look at verse 7. Up and escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory has sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. It's the thing that's most precious. That's what the apple of your eye is. Verse 9, Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. That all through the prophetic literature, you can see this in Isaiah, you can see it in Jeremiah, you see it in Zechariah, you can continue to read on in Zechariah and read Zechariah chapter 8 and then Zechariah chapter 12 and it moves into even your New Testament. So that when Jesus comes into the city in Matthew 23, he says, uh, Jerusalem, uh, how I long to gather you like a hen and his chicks, but you would have none of it. And you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the nation that Jesus says stoned its prophets and killed those who were sent to him now crucify the Savior, their king. And at that point, you think it must be over for this nation, that they have refused to listen, they refuse to obey, they refuse to submit, and now they've even crucified the Son. But something fascinating happens in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Peter is preaching on Pentecost, and he's preaching that there's salvation in Jesus Christ. In Acts 3, when he heals the man at the gate, he says, repent so that times of refreshing would come for you, that you have crucified the Savior, but there's now salvation in your name. He says in Acts 2, one of my favorite spots in Peter's sermon, he says, the promise is for you and for your kids and all those who are far off, whom the Lord will call to himself. So that even when you get to the New Testament epistles, James writes in James chapter 1, he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So, Let me show you this in one more place. This promise, I think, is important for us just to to meditate on. Look at Jeremiah 31. You've probably read Jeremiah 31. It's this wonderful promise of the new covenant that God gives. And in the promise of the new covenant, the new covenant is not particularly given to the church. 
That's why when you read through your Old Testament, the New Testament interprets the church as a mystery during the Old Testament. It's something that the prophets did not see. They did not understand. It was something unveiled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured, which they cannot, and the foundations of the earth below be explored, which they cannot, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. That there's coming a day, according to Zechariah 12, where the national people of Israel will mourn for the one that they have pierced, that there will be massive repentance and revival. That's the picture in Ezekiel 37 of the nation coming together, the dry bones prophecy, where God takes his people and brings them back together under his lordship and under his authority. Go back to Revelation. But in Revelation 14, which is the other place these 144,000 are mentioned, they now stand with the lamb on Mount Zion and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They are completely sold out to him. That the nation has been restored and brought back together. So what we've seen, let's just, let's just keep it to the book of Revelation. Up to this point in the book of Revelation, Jews have been mentioned, right? Jews have been mentioned in the letters to the churches. Look at Revelation 2, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's interesting. Revelation 3, verse 9 says, Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I am have loved you. And now here's John, the last living apostle, the one who has heard the reports that in AD 70, as John writes toward AD 90, he hears the report that the prophecy that Jesus gave, that not one stone would be left upon another as the Romans come in under one of their generals and they raise the religious life of of, uh, the Jews to the ground. Now the Jews remain under the thumb of a world power. And here's John, the very last living apostle. And he's seeing the fact that his people are called Jews. And God says they are not true Jews. They lie. They do not come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They do not repent of their sins. They remain uh, what Paul calls in Romans 9 through 11, hardened. And here's John writing. And he sees this picture of the four winds that are an image of God's judgment now being held back and pushed to the corner and an angel comes and he identifies every single one of his people. And he brings them back together. Zechariah says that David will lead them, the Davidic king who Jesus Christ is. And now John, as his people are dispersed, now sees the rebirth and the renewal and the resurrection of the Jewish people. Imagine John's joy as he writes this and he says, God has not left us alone. That God will be faithful to his word that God has not forgotten us, that we have not sinned too much to be outside of the purposes of God, that God himself will seal us and redeem us and restore us and we will be his people again. Why is this important for you and me? 
Because if God can reject Israel, he can reject you. Do you believe that in Jesus Christ that no sin will have the last word in your life? I mean, really. Because that, you know, we're going to celebrate communion here in a minute. Do you know what communion says? It says that he is more faithful to me than I have ever been to him. Do you believe that? Does that truth work its way into your heart? So that when you come to the word of God, you are more fascinated and captured by the fact that God is faithful to his word than you are reminded by your sin and your failure and your inability to believe and your mixed messages in your heart and all the dimness that you look at life and the uncertainty that you have as you go from place to place and season to season. This is massively important. This is the hope of the people that God will one day remember their sin no more and all of their sin will be taken away and all of their idolatry is taken away and now God will be with his people in Jerusalem again. Look at verse five. This is repeat. Why does he repeat it? You wonder that? Why can't he just go, there were a bunch But God makes John go, no, I want you to number every one. 12,000 of the tribe of Judah. In in the lists of the listing of of the uh, sons of Israel and the chronologies, you ever read like 1 Chronicles and you're like, why am I reading this part of my Bible? That's because you haven't read it. Well, when you read it and you go to that spot in your Bible, you find out it's just lists and lists and numbers of people, and you go, I don't know, can I skip this? Is there a way to skim this part of my reading plan? No list is like this list. I don't know why, but this list begins with the prominent one. What is it? It's the tribe of Judah. It's the one from whom the Messiah comes. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, a keen Bible reader would notice that Joseph is mentioned when Joseph is listed typically as Ephraim and Manasseh, which means you're missing a tribe here. It's the tribe of Dan, Uh, In the Old Testament, the tribe of Dan is probably where idolatry begins in the nation. Um, It's what sets off the cycle in the book of Judges, is the tribe of Dan hiring priests to be their own priests in their own land in their own ways. The tribe of Dan uh, is one of the tribes, or it's, it's the place in northern Israel when the kingdom breaks between the ten tribes in the north and the two in the south. Solomon is over it all, and then his son Rehoboam raised, uh, rules in the south, and another guy named Jeroboam rules in the north. And Jeroboam rules in the north, and he sets up two golden calves, one at Bethel and one at Dan. So it becomes the center of idol worship Now, why aren't they listed here? John doesn't tell us. They are listed in the heavenly city in Revelation chapter 2, but it may be that because idolatry began in the nation, that that's where it took root, that they lose the chance to serve God in this day. I don't know. That could be. It's not totally clear. So what do we do with this? How does this text help you and I love God better and love one another well? Well, you know, a lot of times when we read the scriptures, and I've I've mentioned this already, but when we read the scriptures, we have this way of putting the me lens on stuff, right? And we we look through, uh, and people can read the Bible as if it's like a handbook to life. Like, I face this situation in my marriage and my life, and I look for this spot, and this is going to be the verse to change my life. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? I don't know why that's a marriage verse, but that's the one I've got to live with, right? Or, so we look for kind of like the solution to our problems in God's word. Or we look for uh, ways in which we can bolster our performance. 
that we come to the scriptures and we go, I've got to know more, I've got to do more, otherwise God's not going to be pleased or accepted uh, or going to accept me, and I've got to figure out a way to get more of God's word into my life so that I can be the kind of person God wants me to be. And what I think Revelation chapter 7 shows us is that it minimizes you and I for just a minute, and it magnifies God. Because it says something very, very important to you and to me about God. It tells us that God will always be faithful to his word. Always. That I never have to worry that God has forgotten me. I never have to worry that my sins have the last word. Rather, I have a God who will hold back his wrath so that he will protect and call and seal every one of his kids. Do you believe that? Do you approach the scriptures being fascinated by the grace of God? By being captured by the truth of this God who would so love sinners that he would send his son to die for us even when we were sinners, even when we hated him, even when we denied him. And he will stop at nothing to save us by his grace. Paul says this, and we'll close here. Take a look. Just flip back over to, this is one more spot I want to show you. This is in Romans chapter 11. Romans 9 through 11 is a very important part of Paul's letter. Because if you notice, as you move through the New Testament epistles, they're all uh, Gentile cities. You have Thessalonica, Gentile cities. You have Rome, a Gentile city. You have Ephesus, Gentile cities. You have Colossae, Gentile cities. You have Philippi, Gentile cities. That is this consistent refrain of all these letters to all these churches. But in the midst of the book of Romans, Paul explains what God is doing with the Jew. And he explains how a partial hardening has come upon the Jewish people to where they will not turn and believe nationally until God brings in all of the Gentiles that he means to. And Paul explains that and lays that out for us. Here's what he says in Romans 11, looking, starting in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. They don't believe the gospel message right now. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You know, when you go back to Abraham, Genesis 15 has this encounter between God and Abraham, and Abraham and God are going back and forth about whether or not God can actually give him a son. And God says, go outside, take a look at the stars. If you can even count the stars, that's how many your offspring will be. And then there's this moment where there's this, there's this uh, covenant ceremony where God puts Abraham and he makes him take a nap and then he takes these animals and they parts them in two and then God passes between the parts which is a covenant ceremony where God says if I am not faithful to my word may it be done to me like these animals may I be torn apart and usually it's two people who go through that path saying we both have things that we're obligated to in this relationship, but it's only God who goes through, as if to say God says, I will take the, your unfaithfulness upon me and I will be torn apart. And Paul says here that, that regards election, they're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. God will be faithful to his word to Abraham, and he will be faithful to the nation. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Do you believe that? What is our message to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and background in every single ethnicity, in every single place on this planet? is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace, which he is pouring out in the beloved, Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter how big your sins are, that you can be reconciled to God because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, that he will never leave you, never forsake you. He will forgive your sins and bring you into heaven because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul gets to the end of this thing. Listen, frankly, this is, this is a mind blower, right? What God is doing with the nation of Israel is not a small idea. It carries your entire Bible forward. Then as Paul gets to the end of, Revela of Romans, sorry, Romans chapter 11, he explodes 
Look at the remainder of the text, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who thought this up? How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. Steve, I don't understand anything you've said here today. That's okay. How unscrutable are his ways? It's hard to unscrew the unscrutable. For who has known of the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is how you read your Bible. You get to the end of the work of God and the glory of what he's doing in salvation and you go, God, you are bigger than I ever imagined you to be. You have greater and deeper and sweeter and more faithful plans and I can't unscrew them and I can't understand them, but God, the depths of who you are in your purposes to bring people to yourself causes me to worship. That's how you read the book. Don't get stuck reading the book like an engineer's manual. The thing that undergirds all of our observation and interpretation and understanding God's word is this fascination that God would redeem people. It should blow our minds. So let me apply this. Here you are, here we are, 2021, Citadel Square. We've been called by God, we've been sealed by God if we know him, right? And God has left us here for some indeterminable amount of time. What are you going to do? Why, did he leave you here to make money, go on vacation? Is that why he left us here? When Jesus rises and comes to the disciples, and he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons, which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will be my... It's witnesses. Witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, that you are called and sealed and loved by God to be a carrier of the message that proclaims the glory of God in salvation. Don't miss the opportunity to use your life to align your life to the purposes and the glory of God. Don't live for something little when you can live for things that are unscrutable. So that as you carry the truth of the gospel message into your family and you disciple your kids, into your marriage and you love your mate, into your workplace, you remember that God has put you here and left you here for a time and a season, for as long as he would give you, so that you might be the proclaimer of the glory of God and salvation. And you know it to be true because God will not abandon his people and he will not abandon you. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what truth this is that captures our hearts. Would you prepare us as we get ready to celebrate your faithfulness to us in the moment that we're going to celebrate communion? Father, bless us as we think and ponder the truth that God saves sinners. That Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So Father, would you find us faithful men and women? Would you help us to step out of the areas in our life and heart where we find ourselves disbelieving and discouraged and despairing and uncertain of what you're doing in our life and would you remind us of your goodness to us? Would you remind us of your purposes that you have not left your people alone? That you know us and you love us and you have a purpose for us. And Father, may we be a church, may we be people who cling to the truth of your promises and be amazed at your faithfulness to us. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. 